Colossians chapter number 1 tonight. I want to plow some ground that's probably been plowed before. But tonight I just want to spend a few minutes and talk about some of the things that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, everything that we have in the Christian life, we have in Him. And as you read through the Word of God, you'll find that that phrase, in whom or in Him, is found over and over and over and over again. And three times in the book of Colossians, the phrase, in whom, is found. Seven times in the book of Ephesians, this phrase is used. And you pray for me, I'm praying about a Wednesday night series, just going through those, or a Sunday night series, going through those different in whom's in the book of Ephesians. They present the sevenfold position of the believer in Jesus Christ. But here in the book of Colossians, we have three of them I want to look at tonight. I'm going to do my best to not be lengthy. Uh, I've been doing my best to not be lengthy all the time I've been preaching. It ain't happened yet, but we'll try it again tonight. Amen. Look with me in Colossians chapter number 1. I want to begin in verse number 9. Our uh, first text verse is found in verse 14, but I just want to give us a little context tonight and then we'll pray. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. The shift is taken away from God the Father and away from the believer. And we look at Christ now in verse 13 and 14. It says, in whom? You say, in who? In Him. That's who tonight. It's just spoken of in verse 13. The kingdom of His dear Son. In whom we have redemption through His blood. Even the forgiveness of of sins. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, I desire the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I love you tonight. I know I don't always love you like I ought to. In fact, most of the time, Lord, I'm sure that I fall short in my love for you. But God, I just pray tonight that you'd look past my faults and failures, see only a yielded vessel to be used for your glory and honor. Tonight, Lord, I pray that you'd make real these truths in our hearts. Lord, I don't know what each heart's need is here, but you do. And Father, it's a fitting thing because it's not me that'll do the work here tonight. If anything's accomplished, Lord, it'll be your Holy Spirit. So I'd ask, Father, that you'd have liberty tonight to move and to work. I'd pray that we would all be submitted to you and to the Holy Spirit tonight. Father, that we'd lay our lives open before you, that you may sift through them and find what that area may be that needs to be drawn closer to you. Father, if we have sin in our lives, make us aware of it tonight. Convict us of it, Lord, that we might submit to you and repent of it and ask your forgiveness that it might be cleansed from our life and from our fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that you would encourage every heart tonight in your word. Lord, above all things, I pray that by your Holy Spirit tonight, we'd lift up the holy name of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, that He would be exalted, that we would decrease, that He might increase tonight. Father, if You'll do these things, Lord, we'll be sure to thank You for them, to give You the glory, Lord, and to declare Your doings among the people. Father, we love You tonight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Colossians, obviously, is written to the church at Colossae. And you'll find as you study through the Pauline epistles that uh, most of the churches Paul was writing to, he was having to deal with false doctrine that was creeping in. And let me say that a church must be active against false doctrine. Because the devil is always seeking an opportunity to infect a body of believers with false doctrine. It comes in many forms and in, with many faces. It comes in the face of compromise, the form of compromise. It comes in the form of legalism. It comes in the form of uh, Calvinism many times. It comes in a lot of different forms. But, but heresy and false doctrine will always attempt to infiltrate the local church. And you'll find as you read through the Pauline epistles that Paul gives the exhortation time and time again. In fact, I was reading it just today in the book of Titus. He is admonishing this young pastor at Crete and he says, uh, Him that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. That's pretty harsh language. Today, most of the time, if you admonish somebody, you don't get a second chance, amen? <laughs> you don't have to worry about rejecting them. Usually, if you admonish someone, they'll reject you and move on. But in the New Testament church, Paul says, Titus, you need to be careful about false doctrine. And as you read through the book of Colossae, you'll find that legalism and mysticism, Gnosticism, were false doctrines that were seeking to infiltrate the church. But you know something I've found as I've studied the Word of God? I've found that the problems vary, but the answer is always Jesus Christ. And I've found that if you'll just get the focus back on Christ in the church, it'll take care of those false doctrine problems. You'll find if there's pride in the church, if we'll just get our eyes back on Christ, it'll fix it. You'll find if there's carnality in the church, if we'll just get our eyes back on Christ and see the uh, crucified, buried, and risen Savior, see the Lord of glory, you'll find it'll take care of that carnality. Christ is always the answer uh, in all of our lives for every question. I used to get in trouble going to school. If I didn't know the answer on test, I'd put down Jesus. Amen. And uh, you can't argue with that, especially in Christian school, amen. They'd say, that's the wrong answer. I'd say, that's never the wrong answer. They'd say, I'm still counting it wrong. I'd say, all right. <laughs> but Jesus is always the answer. The person of Christ and His exaltation in the local church is always the answer. And so it's no wonder that as we read the book of Colossians, that all through this little book, Paul keeps drawing them back to the cross, back to the finished work, back to the risen Savior, back to the glorified Lord, back to who we are in Jesus Christ. We find as we read this passage that it will ground us in our doctrine and our faith if we are grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. You'll find today that there's a lot of people that are grounded in the principles of Jesus Christ that are not grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. You'll find there's a lot of people today that have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They don't mind church and they don't mind a historical figure of Jesus Christ, but when you start talking about a risen Savior, that's foreign to them. They don't know what that is. I'd say people like that aren't saved, wouldn't you? I kind of believe you can't. Uh, have the Savior if you don't know Him tonight. And you may disagree, and you're welcome to, and we've got double doors all around. 
But the truth of the matter is, without knowing Christ, you cannot know salvation. Salvation is not just found in principles. Principles are important. It's not just found in a doctrinal body, and doctrine is of the preeminent importance in the local church. But you'll find that it's found in knowing Him and being found in Him. That's what Paul spoke of, that I might be found in Him. I want to talk a little bit tonight about three things that I believe we have in Jesus Christ. Now, not things that we have because we know of Him, because it's not enough to know of Him. Not things that we have in the local church, because it's not enough to be a member of a local church. Not things that we have because we're Baptists. Uh, heaven help us, just being Baptists ain't going to fix it, amen? But things that when we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, things that we have because He died for our sins, but not only because He died, because He rose from the dead, because He's living today, because He is our high priest and intercessor, He is our effectual Savior, He has redeemed us and He's living today. Three things that we have in Him. And I want you to mark down the first thing that we have in verse number 14. The Bible says, in whom we have redemption. That word redemption is very interesting. We uh, make the word redemption synonymous with salvation. And while certainly if a man's redeemed, he's saved, uh, you'll find that each of these words that detail elements of salvation, that they have a particular connotation and an idea behind them. They convey a portion and a facet of the finished work of Christ. And Paul says, listen, in Christ tonight we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, what does that mean tonight? I want to say there's three things about it that I see. I want you to notice first off with this idea of redemption has the idea of a price that's been paid, a payment that's been given. And can I say that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness because He has redeemed us. He has paid our sin debt. It's because of His payment that we are redeemed. Uh, most of us are familiar with the term redeem in that sense. Whenever uh, some of you, uh, you may have won a prize at some point, and it was, it was credited to your account. It was finished. It was done. It was paid for. But it had to be redeemed. You had to receive it. This speaks of what Christ did on Calvary 2,000 years ago. You and I owed a sin debt. I know this is common ground for most of you. I know you're saying, preacher, I've treaded this so bad that it won't even seed up weeds at this point. But you just stick with me because I'm going somewhere with it. Amen. Uh, We see that the price that we owed, we had offended a holy God and we owed a sin debt. It's not just enough that God loved us. Now, praise the Lord for the love of God. But God loved us, but God didn't have to die for us. That's how He commendeth His love toward us. God loved us before Christ ever died for us. God loved mankind before they ever fell. What enough that God loved us, see, because we owed a debt. We had sinned, we had offended God, and we had an account laid to our behalf. 2,000 years ago, Christ on Calvary, the Bible said, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's not saying we knew no sin, it's saying He knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, that whole sin, every sin you've ever committed was taken and placed upon the shoulders of the Lord of glory. And He bore that sin. Isn't it interesting, the Bible says He became sin for us wasn't just that He bore the sin, but He became sin. He was the transgressor on the cross. Do you hear me tonight? When you sin, when you've done wrong, if you've uh, thought uh, lurid thoughts, or if you have stolen, or if you have lied, Christ on the cross of Calvary became that liar. 
He became that rapist. He became that murderer. He became that pedophile. He became that thief. He became that on the cross. And in the eyes of Almighty God, your sin, He became the offender in that sin. When God looked upon Him, He counted all of that sin debt upon His shoulders. And because of His payment, because He took away that payment, He paid that debt, we can be redeemed because of His payment. Notice not only it speaks of His payment, but I want you to notice it speaks also of His power. It says we are redeemed in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You know, it's not just enough. Christ could have canceled our debt upon Calvary, but that wasn't enough. Because of the power of Christ in raising from the dead or the power of God that rose Him from the dead, You say, what's the difference? Well, they're synonymous. (laughs) The book of Ephesians says God raised him up with his power, but Christ said, I lay my life down and I'll take it up again. One in the same power, you understand. Because Christ rose from the dead, it's not just that he paid the debt, but he can apply that payment to our hearts and lives. We've got a great misnomer in the church today. And that is that it is the historical event of Christ on Calvary that saves us. No, neighbor. It is not the historical event of Christ on Calvary that saves us. It is Christ that saves us. It's not just that He died. Now, He had to die for our sins. I understand that. I understand we have redemption. How? Through His blood, through that payment, we can be saved. But Christ must save us. The book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians alike say that He hath quickened us. He applied that. He made us alive. It's not just that we owed a debt. We were dead, you understand. Dead, dead, unable to do anything. You say, preacher, do you believe in total depravity? Well, I believe man's totally depraved, there's no question. I believe he has a choice in coming to God. I believe that he makes a move towards God. But I don't believe he'd even have the awareness to do that if it wasn't for the convicting power of the Word of God. See, I know I'm a sinner because God told me I'm a sinner. Through His Word, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I believe man has a choice in the matter. I believe man has a capability to make a choice in the matter. I don't believe in total depravity in the sense that uh, the reason a man dies and goes to hell is because God's not enabled him to come to the Lord. I don't buy that for one minute. But I do believe this. I do believe that we are so depraved that God has to make us aware, and He does so through His Word, of our fallen sin. Oh, we can hear the words, you understand. But neighbor, I realized I was lost when God made me aware that I was lost. There's a lot of people that told me growing up, you're lost, you're lost, you're lost. But the problem is a dead man don't hear anything. You ever notice that? You go to a funeral, you go ahead and talk to that dead man in that casket. He won't respond. But when God in heaven made it clear to me, then I knew I'm lost. I'm lost. Only a living Savior could quicken us. Only one that has passed through death, come through the other side, raised in power and in glory. Only He could do that. So we see not only His payment, not only His power, but I believe we're redeemed also because of His position. You see, Christ on Calvary took care of our ancient sin debt, if we could put it that way, our past sin debt. Took care of our sin nature, but took care of all of our past sins. Because Christ rose from the dead, He can apply that. But what of sins today and in the future? I believe because of His position as our intercessory high priest today. We're saved, what does the Bible say, to the uttermost. God is able to thoroughly save us. 
It's not just, and I want to be very clear in saying this, I'm not saying that salvation is a progressive matter. I believe when a man accepts Christ as his Savior, that he's saved immediately and eternally. I believe that with my whole heart. But the reason that we can be saved eternally, the reason that we can maintain fellowship with God, the reason that we have a relationship with the Lord of glory is because we have a high priest seated at the right hand of the Father and ever living to make intercession for us. As long as we have sin, we need a Savior. You hear me tonight? Not as long as we have sin, we need to be resaved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying as long as we have sin, we need a Savior. And we don't get that in anything else. No other world religion, and I don't mean to equate Christianity as a world religion. It's not a world religion. It's the way, the truth, and the life. But if we could speak in looser terms, we'd say no other world religion produces such a thing for their adherents. Nothing. You'll not find it anywhere that a risen Savior saves them and maintains a personal relationship through the Holy Spirit of God. You'll not find that in anything else. You know where we have that? In whom? In Him. It's only in Christ that we have that tonight. You'll find it nowhere else. And it's in Him, risen, living, alive, powerful today. It's in Him that we have these things. Not in what He did. What He did is vital. What He did is necessary. But it's not just what He did. It's who He is today. It's in Him we have these things in the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the second one with me tonight. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. If you've got a Schofield Bible, you don't even have to turn the page. It says, speaking of Christ, well, I'll tell you what, we'll start at verse number uh, 1 of chapter 2. It says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement, notices of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I believe tonight that we have redemption in Him, but I believe we have illumination in Him tonight. I believe that in the person of Jesus Christ, living, risen, seated at the right hand of the Father, I believe we have an awareness of His Word and His ways and His will for our lives. And that could only come through a risen Savior. The Bible's a remarkable book. It's perfect, it's infallible, it's God-breathed, it's inerrant. And let me say tonight that it's preserved, too. It's preserved tonight. Uh, It doesn't do us a bit of good. This isn't my message, but I think it's worth saying. It don't do us a bit of good if God inspired some originals if we don't have nothing to show for it today. That don't do us a bit of good tonight. There's no sense. You might as well not believe in inspiration if you're not going to believe in preservation. Because it don't mean a thing. Because nobody's got the originals today. Am I right? If you've got a copy in your on your coffee table, you better fess up. Amen. Uh, but I know I've not got any, and they haven't been able to produce any yet. If you're not going to believe in preservation, you might as well not even believe in inspiration. It means nothing. And if you're not going to believe in inspiration, there's no sense in believing in preservation. Why would God preserve something that's already corrupt? Is that the way God works? No, He doesn't do that. He preserved it in perfection and in practicality in a book that we can read and believe and love and obey today. Aren't you thankful for the Word of God? But can I say that without Christ, that's a dead book. It's a dead book without Christ. Without the living and risen... You say, why is that? Because the Word, the written Word and the living Word are synonymous in nature. 
If Christ had died upon Calvary, never to be risen from the dead, never to raise Himself up in power, never to be raised of the Father, we might as well have buried the Word of God with Him. Because only through the living, risen Savior and through the work of the Holy Spirit... You say, I thought we were talking about Christ tonight, not the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of Christ. And only through Him can we be made aware of what the Word of God means. There are a lot of people with brilliant degrees, theologists, amen, that don't have a clue about Christ. You can read the works of theologians, theologists. Did I say that? That ain't right, is it? Meteorologists? I'll get it. I'll pick one and go. You know what I mean, amen. That's kind of how you have to listen to me. You get one of those, oh no, I know what he meant. <laughs> theologians that had brilliance about them. Had degrees, had so many letters after their name, they could make alphabet soup. I like what Leonard Ravenhill said. He said, you know, you can have 32 degrees and still be frozen. <laughs> It don't do you a bit of good. And there's people with an academic brilliance that is unparalleled, but they don't know the author tonight. And if you don't know the author, you don't know the Word. You don't know the Word. Oh, you may know principles of it, but it means nothing. It's hollow. It means nothing to our lives without knowing the Lord. I want you to notice three things that I believe in Christ we are made aware of. And first is we know about the ways of God. It says the mystery of God, the Father, and of the Spirit, and of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse number 2. It says the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. We're made aware of the ways of God through the person of Christ. Because He is alive and risen today and the Holy Spirit of God lives within us, when we have need of it, we're made aware of what God's ways are. We have an understanding of God's ways and of the mystery of grace and the mystery of redemption. You say, what do you mean by mystery? Well, the word mystery in the Word of God doesn't mean Nancy Drew, amen? It's not the Hardy Boys. What it means in the Word of God is something that at one time was not revealed, but now it's been revealed. When was that revealed? Was it revealed in the Old Testament? No. It was revealed in the New Testament. Through the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, through His ministry, and through the inspiration of the men of God that pinned down the New Testament, through the living, risen Savior, through the Word of God, we know the ways of God. We're made aware it was a great mystery to the Old Testament saints. They couldn't understand redemption. They couldn't understand a coming suffering Messiah. They couldn't understand these things. But ever since Christ came, it's been brought into the light. We understand them now. We know the ways of God, but we know the Word of God as well. Uh, what is it in the book of uh, one of the epistles that John wrote? He said, you have no need that any man teach you. Self-same spirit, the unction, it'll teach you. So what does that mean, preacher? It means the Holy Spirit of God is our teacher, the Spirit of Christ. He takes the Word of God and applies it in our hearts. I feel that part of the reason we're so unfruitful in understanding God's Word is because we're not submitted to the very person that is to be our teacher. Have you ever noticed how hard it is? Some of you teachers can attest to this. you ever notice how hard it is to teach somebody when they're not paying attention? <laughs> and the problem is, as we read the Word of God, we're not paying attention. We read it. We may even study it on an academic level. But the purpose of the Word of God, the Word of God is not fine and decorated cake to be put under a glass, but it's the bread from heaven to be fed upon every single day and to sustain our very souls. And the problem is we're looking at it and we're saying, oh, that's pretty, but we're not saying, oh, that's what I need for my life and for my soul. The Word of God is only effectually read as it's applied to our hearts. Get that tonight. You can read the Word of God and think about others' lives all you want, and it won't do a thing for you. But when you begin to open God's Word and say, Lord, what do you got for me in here? 
What do you got for me in here? Take the other person's name off the cover and write your own there and say, this is God's love letter to me and make it real to my heart and life. And He's able to do that. Notice we not only know the ways of God, the Word of God in the risen Savior, but we know the will of God. Look at verse number 9 of chapter 1 again. Look at the emphasis here. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It says again in verse number 10 in different words, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Because of the risen Savior seated at the right hand of the Father, the will of God can be made known to us in our lives. No other quote-unquote God, no other quote-unquote Messiah in any other world religion, in any other religious structure whatsoever, has the capacity or ability to on a minute and daily basis reveal the will of God to their adherents, to their followers. Stop and think about that for a moment you'll find it to be true. They may be able to supposedly convey some grand and masterful plan. They may supposedly be able to come down to Muhammad, their prophet, and give them some broad and vague and vast vision of what uh, Islam is going to be. And you know as well as I do that there's but one God, one Lord. That's what Paul said. But Paul spoke of other religions in this manner, so I think i got a little liberty too tonight. We know that no other gods are gods. But in those religious structures, they may be able to convey a broad scheme. But only the God of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ that has borne our sorrows and borne our griefs and is concerned with the details of our life, can convey to us the everyday of things. What a remarkable thing that God cares the direction you go to work in the morning. God cares the place that you eat at. God cares the car that you buy, the house that you buy, the everyday details of things. Oh, this is foreign to any other religious figure. But in Christ we have these things. In Christ we have a Savior that's concerned with our lives shared this anecdote with you before, but G. Campbell Morgan, great Bible teacher, he manned the Westminster pulpit in England for a lot of years. Someone asked him one time, they were having a question and answer session, asked him, said, Dr. Morgan, does God care about the small problems in my life? And Dr. Morgan, he's a big old tall skinny man, he's about as big around as my right leg, amen. He stopped for a moment and he looked at him and he said, what problems do we have that are big to God? Wrap your mind around that tonight. Does God care about the details of our life? What in our life would be vast to Him? This is the God that stepped out onto nothing and with nothing flung everything out into creation and existence to work in perfect and harmonious nature. This is the God that stepped out of heaven, that laid down His glory robe and stepped into the clothes of a man and walked on this earth and opened blinded eyes and raised up those that were dead and caused lame legs to walk again and mounted the cross of Calvary and bore your sins and bore my sins. And we think our problems are too big for Him. Why would we think such a thing? Well, we're all a little self-centered, you know that? <laughs> we all look at our problems and say, it's so big to me, it must be big to God. But His ways are not our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts. And in Him we have a God that wants us to know His will and that cares and is concerned with the details of everyday life. Look with me at one other thing and I'll close. Look down at verse number 11. Speaking of Christ, Paul writing says this, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins 
And the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. I believe in him tonight we have redemption in the person of Christ. We stand in His stead, and His redemption is accounted to us. I believe we have illumination tonight in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe He makes known to us the will of God, and only a living Savior could do such a thing. But I believe tonight we have sanctification in Him. That word sanctification is a big, expensive word, and it means to set apart. And it can have to do with ceremonial sanctification. Uh, That's what we see in the life of Jeremiah when the Lord says, Before I formed thee in the womb, I knew thee, I chose thee. It's saying that I had a plan for your life before you were ever even born. That's ceremonial sanctification. Or uh, we might call it, uh, uh, how how would we put this? Uh, The will of God, vocational sanctification. Being set apart unto a work that God has. But there's also what we would call spiritual sanctification, which is what's being spoken of in this passage. And Paul says that through Jesus Christ we have the circumcision that's not made with hand. I'm not going to be graphic tonight. Most of us are out on enough to know what's being talked about when it says circumcision. But it's speaking of the putting away of the filth of the flesh. And so it's speaking about our cleanness in Christ, our our set-apart nature in Jesus Christ. And I like to associate this word with sanctification because it's the only way sanctification can take place. I like to associate the word grace with it. Grace. We're sanctified by His grace. Uh, The grace of God hath appeared unto all men, teaching us uh, that denying lust. And so grace always goes hand in hand with sanctification, with a clean life and cleansing through Christ. And I believe, first off, I want you to see three things tonight. I believe, first off, that grace is our position in Him. The Bible says, look at it again, "...in whom also ye are circumcised." with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What's being said here tonight is that when Christ died upon Calvary, He washed our sins away. When God looks upon us, He doesn't see a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner. But when God looks upon us, He sees a son, immaculate, redeemed, and washed in the blood of Christ. That's what God sees when He sees me. He sees the blood tonight. Grace is our position When God sees us, that's what He sees, is His own grace. But I want you to notice, look at verse number 12. Buried with Him in baptism. I believe grace is our past. Burial and the burial of Christ has to do with the doing away of our sin, the memory of it, and the guilt of it. I'm thankful tonight that no matter what I've been in Jesus Christ, I don't have to let my past haunt me. Aren't you thankful tonight? I saved as a 10-year-old boy. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. 10-year-old boy, I wasn't running drugs up the East Coast, amen? I wasn't hanging out in biker bars as a 10-year-old boy. Just as lost as anyone was. Just as hell-bound as anyone was. And I thank God that my past is buried in Christ. But let me say to some of you that let a few more years go by, some of you that were in maybe a little bit murkier waters, aren't you thankful tonight? Aren't you thankful that sanctification has done away with your past? Aren't you thankful you got the past that Jesus Christ had? Aren't you thankful when God looks at you, He doesn't see a bunch of scars tonight and baggage, but He sees one that's been washed and made clean and whole in His precious Son. Grace is our position. Grace is our past. But I want you to notice the third thing. Grace is our power. 
It speaks not only of sanctification as what Christ did for us. It speaks not only of sanctification as in what God did with our past, but it speaks of sanctification as in what God is doing with us now and in our future. Look at it again in verse number 13. It says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. We spoke of that word quicken. It means to be made alive. In other words, we are living in Christ today. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the Bible says, For ye are ordained, foreordained unto good works, that ye should walk therein. Sanctification is a positional thing, but sanctification is also a progressive thing in our lives. So what do you mean, preacher? It means God is still working on me means there's areas in my life that need work. I think all of us, if we'd be honest, we'd admit that tonight. There's areas in my life that I need to dedicate to Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that it is the grace of God that teaches us that denying ungodliness and fleshly lust. I'm thankful that it's the grace of God that enables us to grow in Christ. Do you know that in the natural man, you don't have the capacity to walk with God? You don't have the capacity. You can't keep up with Him, amen? You don't have the capacity to walk with God. Your morality is not good enough to satisfy God. It takes spirituality in the person of Jesus Christ. Your energy in the flesh, Zechariah chapter 4 uh, tells us this, and we were in there Sunday morning, uh, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Oh, I understand the context of that, but I believe it applies just about anything, don't you? I believe that in our flesh we have no energy to please God. And I believe a lot of the reason for the failure in the Christian walk of most believers today is trying to do the, the things of God and trying to walk with God in the energy of the flesh. Say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, we know we have sin in our lives, but instead of getting it out and asking God to forgive us and to help us and to give us the strength and the spirituality to walk with Him, we just go on like nothing happened. You know why we do that? We don't want to admit to God that we did something wrong. But listen to me, when we try to serve God with sin in our lives, we're doing it in the energy of our flesh. And it's no wonder that we fail. We give the accuser something to tout upon us. We give our flesh something to feed off of. We give our fears something to drive on. We give ourselves all of these occasions to the flesh and advantages to Satan. And then we wonder why we can't walk with God. I, let me say this very clearly. You cannot walk with God with sin in your life. I want us to get that tonight. You cannot walk with God with sin in your life. That sin must be addressed at some point. It must be dealt with. And it's through the grace of God and Him forgiving us and cleansing us, but also in the grace of God in enabling us and empowering us uh, to believe that forgiveness, to believe that redemption, and to go on with God and to get up and be dusted off and walk on with God. That's grace. That's the process of sanctification. Sanctification is not us achieving perfection on this side of heaven. But sanctification is us effectually submitting ourselves to the Spirit of God and allowing Him to live through us. We only have that in Christ. We can only have it in Him because He's a living and risen Savior. A dead God couldn't do that for us. A dead Savior couldn't do that for us. Why do you think the resurrection is of such vital importance in the New Testament church, both in the apostolic days and in the modern day? The resurrection is probably the chief doctrine in the New Testament church. We speak much about the propitiatory death of Christ on Calvary. And that's important, neighbor. Don't do away with that. But you find that the resurrection is given the chief preeminence in the local church in the New Testament. Why? Reckon why that is. 
I, I think it's because you can believe in all the right things, but unless you're in Him and you know Him, it's not going to do you a bit of good. We talk about all the time the Word of God says, uh, uh, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And we say, wonder why all these Christians aren't living like new creatures. I kind of wonder a lot of them know about Him, but they're not in Him. It's only when you're in Him. You say, preacher, what does in Him mean? It means truly be born again and saved. I'm not saying somebody's going to walk off the altar and all of a sudden everything in their life be cleaned up. But I think there will be a change, don't you? I think part of the reason we don't see that change is we're leading people to the belief in a historical event instead of the effectual trusting in a living Savior to redeem them. That's where our problems are coming in. You can believe whatever you want about the cross of Calvary. That's not going to save you. You must put your faith in the risen Savior and in His finished work on Calvary. That's what is a vital necessity. Because it's not just of Him that we have these things. See, if it said of Him, we might say that has to do with what He did on Calvary. And certainly without what He did on Calvary, none of this would be possible. But it's not just of Him. It's in Him. And only in a risen and living Savior can things be thus. 